really the the farm the the that sort of boundary of the farm is now the world sort of thing and and we need to remember especially when it comes to poultry we in large part are taking what would be low value you know uh, in a lot of co-products and things like that and we're upcycling it into high value protein product so in that context we really should be thinking that you know instead of this modular thinking whereas you know here's a poultry farm and here's a you know, whatever really what we're doing is a value-added activity within the crop sector a whole new era of communication in the poultry industry is coming now you have the brightest minds of the global poultry industry right in your pocket and what's best you can listen to all of them while driving to a farm traveling or running errands it's never been this good and it's never been this simple. We want to thank the innovative companies and products whose support and trust make this podcast possible. DSM, helping customers with efficient, sustainable poultry production. Ivonic Animal Nutrition, we are sciencing the global food challenge. AB Vista offers pioneering products and technical services tailored to the poultry industry to help them succeed. Natural Biologics is looking deeper to find the natural solutions to your poultry health challenges. Adaseo provides nutritional solutions and services to help producers achieve their targets in high-quality, safe, and sustainable way. Welcome to the Poultry Podcast Show, a weekly podcast where you'll find cutting-edge insights and everything that's working in the global poultry industry. Eastman serves veterinarians and nutritionists in agrochemical and animal health industries by helping them select, evaluate, and implement innovative nutritional programs. Eastman works with your team to customize your gut health approach in feed and water. Eastman's approach addresses nutritional and bacterial challenges and finds new ingredient preservation and hygiene solutions. Explore ways to accelerate and innovate your programs. Contact the animal nutrition team at eastman.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Poultry Podcast. My name is Jason Emmert, and our guest today is Matt Orishak, who is currently pursuing a PhD in poultry nutrition at the University of Alberta in Edmonton. Matt previously worked for 12 years as a research associate for the Alberta Agriculture and Forestry Division of the Alberta government, and also previously worked as an environmental program specialist and livestock production instructor. In his current Ph.D. program, Matt is focused on addressing technical issues associated with expanded use of faba beans as a feedstuff for layers and broilers. He also has a strong interest in dietary strategies to reduce the environmental footprint of poultry production. Welcome to the podcast, Matt. We're excited to visit with you. Great to be here. Thanks for the invitation, Jason. Looking forward to it. Yeah, well, we sure appreciate you spending some time with us. And oftentimes we like to hear about people's academic journey, but you've got some great experience before returning to academia. So anything yeah. you'd like to share about that journey, we'd love to hear it. Yeah, sure. I mean, uh, yeah, I, uh, I did. Uh, I'm, I'm a city kid, uh, born and bred. Uh, I never it didn't come from a farm background, but was always drawn to agriculture. I liked animals and and uh, spent a little bit of time on, uh, you know, farms uh, belonging to fa extended family. And so I, for my bachelor's degree, I uh, went out to the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, Canada, and uh, 
I did my bachelor's degree there. Um, it was there that I kind of uh, met uh, uh, a couple of people that were very influential in, in steering me into uh, animal nutrition. Uh, one of them was Dr. Robert Blair, who um, is in Western Canada is very well known, particularly in, in, in swine circles. And uh, he, was, he was a very important uh, mentor. And um, after that, I, he encouraged me and, and I, uh, I went to the University of Saskatchewan in, uh, in Saskatoon uh, and worked at the Prairie Swine Center under Dr. Rude Zilstra. did my master's degree uh, looking at uh, the effect of particle size and enzymes on uh, reducing uh, nitrogen phosphorus excretion from pigs. Uh, that was still in the day when we were still kind of kneeling out phytase and some of these other things, so um, especially in a Western Canadian context. And uh, also came into contact with uh, uh, Dr. John Patience, who I think is a host of one of your sister podcasts here. Yeah. Uh, John is a great guy, and he was a great mentor and, and learned a lot. Um, I then, uh, my first job out of uh, school was... Um, uh, actually teaching in a two-year vocational agriculture program at a uh, uh, place called Fairview College. Um, Fairview is well, about five hours north of Edmonton here, so it's about as, wow. far, about as far north as we do agriculture. Um, there is agriculture all the way up to the Northwest Territories, but that's kind of the central area there. Um, and the one thing that I took away from that experience is uh, when you have to teach somebody, sometimes you realize your own deficiencies in knowledge and you're literally learning about two steps ahead of the people that you then uh, have to teach. And, and you know, it's uh, I believe it's uh, the Richard Feynman principle that, uh, you know, if you can't explain it to, um, you know, a, a fourth grader or something, you don't understand it well enough. So that's always been my guiding light whenever it comes to um, extension as well. If you can't explain it in cer certain terms, you don't understand it well enough. Um, so, yeah, so after that, I did that for two years, and then I moved to the government, as you said, and uh, spent about four years doing uh, manure management, nutrient management extension as part of a team. Uh, I was the only animal scientist. Everybody else, there were these... Uh, agronomists and soil scientists and they kind of looked at me sideways because what is what do animal nutritionists know about nutrient management but um <laughs> we all got along well and everybody um really played an important role and uh, i learned so much from them uh that helped me really understand holistically um sort of where livestock fit into the big picture of um you know the agri our agricultural systems and uh, yeah, and then after uh, I left government for a short period and came back, and then as you said, for 12 years, I worked as a uh, feed associate with, with uh, Monogastric, uh, Monogastric Feed Research Group. Uh, it was led by Dr. Eduardo Beltranina. Uh, again, probably uh, better known to uh, uh, pig folks, but uh, he entrusted to me uh, the poultry research component or, or stream of research and, uh, yeah, did some stuff. I uh, look, have looked at a lot of feedstuffs, uh, different feedstuffs that we produce here. Um, and then also, uh, I, I have always had an interest in, in understanding the connection between animal nutrition 
an environmental footprint. And so I, I very fortunate to be able to have a little bit of freedom within the pro uh, within the context of our program to look at that. So that's how kind of how, uh, and then uh, the, what led me into my PhD after being away from academia for 20 years is um, uh, the realization I love research, um, but you kind of hit a ceiling if uh, uh, in terms of funders and whatever, uh, if you are trying to do that with a master's degree. Uh, so at the same time, the, the government was in the process of, they were getting out of the business of having uh, in-house researchers as provincial employees. So uh, it was at that point that uh, Doug Corver, uh, who's a friend and mentor, longtime mentor, uh, he said, you know, you're welcome to come here. And uh, so, yeah, so I've been here at the University of Alberta for the last uh, three years. Well, 2021. So I'm, I'm into my third year. Sure. Sure. One of the things that I would say, uh, just in terms of the circuitous route that I've taken is, I, I find it is it is a completely different ball game when you've spent time out working in industry in agriculture, and then you come back into academia. You have a very different perspective than if you've just gone straight from you know bachelor's, master's, PhD. Um, it helps you understand a little bit of um, the importance of the so what of your research and being able to explain that to a general audience. So, yeah. So that's the long winded uh, story. Absolutely. But I think that's, um, that's encouraging to anybody who's out there and is, is in career and maybe even feeling like mid career, but just wondering if it's, is it possible to, to change directions and, and go back and learn some different things and pursue something different? It is uh, because life experience it gives you certain gifts that you cannot get through a traditional education. Life is the greatest teacher, I think. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and yeah, I, I, I had I, my biggest concern uh, coming back into the program, uh, into a program was not necessarily the research component because I had been yeah. doing that. Um, yeah. But it was actually, could I sit through three hours a week of lecture, uh, of lecture a week, yeah. you know, because, you know, I think all of us, as we get older, you become somewhat autodidactic. You, you know, when you need information, you go find it. You yeah. seek out the information that you need. So the idea of sitting, you know, having to be in a lecture at a particular time and, you know, assignments and whatever, that was really, I think, what I was worried most about. But, you know, you you fall into the routine and um, and you do it and you get the get the work done. So. Yeah, I would really encourage anybody out there, if you are, um, you know, sort of advanced in your career, don't be afraid of thinking about going back to school because you will find it, you know, if you had a really rough experience, um, you know, in your master's degree. And believe me, uh, the it's a common experience. Everybody has kind of a rough ride because your expectations sometimes don't um, match up with with what the reality is. But um, but believe me that after spending some time out in the world and, you know, seeing things, you, you have, you have a lot of skills and, and abilities that you don't really realize until you're dropped into the situation. So, yeah, Absolutely. so be open to it. Yeah. 
I'm so glad you shared that part because that's a uh, hearing from people who have, have gone down that path is so, so valuable. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, great. Well, let's now um, kind of shift gears and we'll think about um, your current project, what you're working on right now, which I think is with uh, Faba Beans. And so give us kind of what what's the genesis of that project? What uh, what's leading you into that line of research? Sure. Uh, yeah, sure. So the uh, here in Canada uh, and particularly in Western Canada, mm-hmm. um, even though we have like at last count, I think I counted 50 different agricultural commodities, feedstuffs that we produce here in Western Canada. Uh, poultry production still relies heavily on soybean meal as that that's what everybody likes to use. Of course, yeah. we don't. that's the, one of the commodities we don't produce here at all. Um, so most of that is imported. And so we, we are kind of at the mercy of global prices, uh, exchange rates, things like that. Um, now at the same time, um, if you're a crop producer in Western Canada, the, the secret sauce in terms of a crop rotation is typically, uh, you want to have a grain or, and maybe there's two grain crops in a a four year rotation. You want an oil seed because oil seed, uh, usually that's your money maker. And then you want a pulse crop as well, because that helps to sort of rebuild uh, the nitrogen in the soil. It also, um, you know, especially if there's a year where there's uh, fertilizer prices are up, like we've seen the last little while because of uh, global events, um, you can kind of, uh, you know, there's an option. it's, it, it really helps. And also the oil seed, especially here in Western Canada, is canola. And canola almost on its own has been responsible for a rebuilding of soil organic content in Western Canada. So it, so it has it's not just for economic reasons, it's also for soil health reasons. Sure. Now, the problem is um, the, the, the dominant pulse crops in Western Canada, peas is kind of one of the big ones, and there's also mm-hmm. lentils chickpeas. Here in Alberta, it's, it, peas are usually king. But the problem is if you live in an area that is prone to early frost or you can't get out into the fields early in the spring um, or you – tend to have wet conditions peas may not be the best option for you just because uh, peas like peas like it dry um Mm -hmm. so where fava beans sort of come into it is they are somewhat more cold uh, tolerant uh they they love wet conditions Mm -hmm. and uh, they're also in terms of pulse crops they're able to fix almost 100 percent of their nitrogen requirements so 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 yeah, now on top of that, from a feed standpoint, um, typically when you're talking about field peas, protein content is somewhere in the 23 to 27-ish percent protein range. Faba beans is 26 to 30. And uh, because of that, there's a lot of interest uh, from the uh, plant-based protein trend that's going on right now to use faba as the the uh, base for producing, uh, you know, plant-based protein fractions mm-hmm. and, and concentrates and things like that. Right. The problem, however, when it comes to fava beans is um, 
it doesn't really, uh, there are very limited markets. So as opposed to peas where there is a, a really solid feed market, um, fava, fava beans, there is very limited international markets. The, the main international market actually, from my understanding, is Egypt uh, and, and a couple of the countries in the Middle East there. Um, that market, however, is a bit crowded because we compete with the French, uh, Australians, Italians, and also to an extent uh, producers in the UK. So, and of course, our crop is usually the last one to come off in the year. So, yeah. kind of Johnny come lately um, to the game. So, as a result, the acreage of faba that we grow is very limited. And uh, right now, a lot of it is being grown under contract, uh, or th there is a lot of contract growing that's going up to supply uh, plant-based uh, protein producers. So, so protein um, people are doing fractionation and things like that. So the problem is, is that there's stagnation in the acreage of fava bean. And as I mentioned, that has effects if you're a crop producer because it limits your options and rotation. Right. And at the same time, um, poultry producers really are looking for anything that they can find to help manage feed costs. Mm -hmm. So really where the, the, the catalyst for this project is we're trying to resolve a lot of the basic technical issues that we need to understand uh, in order to facilitate expanded use of faba beans for poultry production. Right, the, right. Idea be, the idea being if we come out of this project and we can demonstrate the utility of faba beans and where they fit in to poultry rations, then we can maybe start developing a bit of a domestic market, like a sustainable demand uh, for faba beans, which would allow expansion of uh, faba bean acreage. Um, one of the things, and I think a lot of people who sort of operate in the, um, if, if you do any sort of uh, crop pro processing, you really need to have that livestock market, a uh, feed market to be able to sustain acreage or grow acreage uh, because there's always going to be a proportion of your tonnage that you grow every year that isn't going to be usable for, for human food or even bioindustrial stuff. So what are you going to do with it? Yeah. Um, that's, that's kind of, uh, it's key to have that, that issue figured out before you start getting into some novel crop production, because if you don't right. figure out, where your marketing streams are, uh, it really limits the economic viability of growing a particular crop. So canola is a good example. I mean, if we weren't if we weren't able to sell all of our uh, canola meal that comes out of the canola crushing into the dairy industry, that's that's a major revenue stream that would really limit uh, the economic value of canola. But we have that, so. And that's really what we're trying to do. We're trying to develop that salvage market, that feed market uh, for faba growers um, to, for the mutual benefit of poultry producers and and faba producers. So that's kind of, you know, that, that that's kind of the, the, the crux of the project. Yeah. Yeah. I love the, the 
aspect of the the market analysis and really thinking about it from production and and what is yeah. the overall market like and who are you competing with on a worldwide scale it's a it's a level of understanding that i think sometimes is hard to impart to mm-hmm. our graduate students particularly if they're going straight through school they, yeah. you know if they don't have that practical experience sometimes it's hard to grasp that so i really appreciate that that background yeah. Now, when we think about FABA, are, are we um, are we thinking about some of the same kinds of anti-nutritional factors? Are there similar challenges? Do we know with with the use of FABA for poultry? Okay, so um, there are some that are similar and mm-hmm. some that are unique to FABA. So, for example, um, uh, oligosaccharides. We know that, like most pulses, there's oligosaccharides in there. Right. Uh, we're not sure to what extent those are really problematic, but like mm-hmm. peas uh, and also um, uh, soy itself has uh, oligosaccharides that, that we deal with. Um, so, you know, that's one aspect. Uh, another one is tannins. So there's a, there's been sort of a, 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 an open question as to how, problematic uh, tannins in faba bean are. Uh, one of the things uh, we know about tannins in faba bean is they're pretty much concentrated in the hull. So if you wanted to go to the extent of dehulling them, um, but, you know, right now we're, we're sort of at early days because you would have to demonstrate, is there an economic benefit or a nutritional benefit to dehulling? Right. Uh, so that, that's an open question, and it's one of the questions that we're going to look at in our studies is just, you know, is it really worth, you know, is it really worth dehulling if you're dealing with a high tannin variety? Or, you know, maybe sh- we should only be focusing on tannin-free or low tannin variety. So that that's an open question. Oh, very so, good. Yeah. So, yeah, so oligosaccharides is one. Uh, phytic acid, of course, there's mm-hmm. phytic acid in there as well. So that's kind of par for the course for mm-hmm. plant-based ingredients. The one that's kind of unique, though, um, to faba bean is visine and convisine. Now, I won't get into a whole detailed discussion of this, uh, but uh, essentially what visine and convisine do is when they're metabolized in the digestive tract and they're absorbed, it increases the oxidative load so it it, it increases oxidative stress in the animal you get more free radicals Mm -hmm. it taxes the intrinsic uh antioxidant systems in in the birds and uh, one there's a there there's there's some conflicting information out there as to whether whether at practical inclusion levels, whether the levels that we see in fava beans, whether they're problematic. Now, the good news is, is that plant breeders have figured out, uh, they, they, they know how to screen for that trait now. And so probably over the next 10 years, vicing, convicing will be eliminated. But in the interim, uh, because we don't want to wait for 10 years for people to finally think about, you know, fava beans as a feedstock. Yeah. We know that in humans uh, with a certain genetic uh, um, defect, I guess, Mm -hmm. uh, that limits their body's ability to recycle glutathione 
And as a result, they're more susceptible to oxidative stress. Mm-hmm. When they ingest uh, faba beans in particular that have visine, convisine, it can actually result in a fatal condition called fabism. So basically, they just die of oxidative stress. Uh, right. You know, they... Um, they, they're just not able to replenish the, the glutathione and it can be fatal. Um, now, in the context of poultry, when you look at a chicken, you're like, oh, it's a chicken. But, in re- uh, but I'm reminded of a T-shirt that a friend of mine had, you know, that says, you know, it may look like I'm not doing anything, but at the metabolic level, I'm really busy. And that's really, when you look at chickens, modern strains of poultry, you know, they, they may look like, you know, just a chicken. But metabolically, they're marathon runners. They are athletes. And there's a lot going on. And it's an open question that, again, we're going to look at in our our studies here. Do the levels of visine and convisine that we see in Western Canadian fava beans currently, are they going to move the birds above that threshold where they start manifesting, you know, reductions in... Uh, performance because they're just not able to keep up with that the the oxidative load. We don't know that, and uh, so we're we're go- that that is going to be one of the components of our our research project is so looking at tannins and looking at at visine, convisine and trying to figure out um, contextualize it in a in a poultry nutrition uh, situation. So yeah. Very good. And of course, with ingredients that are currently used and lots of research that's been done, you're, you're poised to really understand, as, as you mentioned, what the questions are, what the most likely issues are, and you can, you can really come at it uh, yeah. in a very informed way, which is great. Yes. Yeah, very good. Now, I wanted to spend a little bit of time because I know you have the interest um, on the environmental side as well, and and not just interest, but experience, which is very valuable. And I I suspect you're not coming at it from the angle of all agriculture is bad. (laughs) And so kind of if you could just take us through kind of your perspective on where animal agriculture fits into things and uh, and maybe directions we might might need to go in the future. Yeah. Yeah, sure. That uh, is a great question. Um, so one of the things that I, I think is unfortunately, um, there is a, a prevailing view in society that you're, when it comes to environment, you're guilty until proven innocent. And yeah. I think that animal agriculture in particular is, uh, is a victim of that sort of uh, worldview, I guess. Yeah. And, um, you know, you have to start at the very, uh, I, I think whenever you're looking at environmental impact of human activity, the first question you have to ask is, well, what is the value of that activity to society? Right. Well, yeah. we're feeding people and we're doing it really well because, I mean, here in North America, we're able, able to feed not just our own population, but people around the world with about somewhere between two to 3% of the population doing all the heavy lifting. Right. So I I think we need to really just step back a little bit and realize that every, all of the other activity that we do in society, you know, people, you know, doing science and, and getting educated and doing all of these other activities is only possible because 
we have gotten so good at producing food that we don't need as many people doing it. So, of course, that allows people to pr- pursue other interests and whatever. So that's the first thing um, is, is we really just need to realize that. Um, and just to go back to the, this idea of guilty till proven innocent, you know, in, early in my career, one of the one of the things that that I was a part of was here in Alberta, we had uh, there was a, a process called the Alberta Farm Plan. And what it was, uh, it was I, I think it was deployed nationwide here, but each province kind of it, it looked a little bit different. And what it was, is it was a user friendly risk assessment that you would go out and do with producers and it would walk them through it. It broke it down, you know, like, uh, you know, how are you storing your fertilizer, whatever. It was a very user-friendly risk assessment process. And initially, you know, producers were a little bit, you know, hey, come do this, you know. Um, and one of the things that was done was in order to get access to, to some of these pro, uh, funding programs to make improvements, you had to go through the farm plan process. So there's some people came into it from that. But but for a lot of people, um, it was they, they had some reservations, probably the same reservations that I have when my wife tells me you need to go to the doctor. And I'm like, I don't you know, I'm only going to get bad news if I go to the doctor. That's right. Um, yeah. and so, you know. There is this sort of, you know, self-consciousness among producers that they're only going to hear bad things. You're only going to be told about, you know, what you're not doing well. But what I really liked about the way the programmers run is it was actually quite affirming for the producers because they would go through this binder and they would realize, oh, I've only got like three or four things that really I need to improve on. I'm actually doing everything really, really well. And, um, and, and a lot of producers who went through the process, they're like, oh, yeah, I, I'm, I am doing a good job. You know, I don't need to, you know, have my, you know, my perception of the job I'm doing should not be shaped by, you know, people out there telling me I'm a terrible, you know, uh, an environmental villain because I'm actually doing a really good job. Now, the missing piece, I think, is we don't tell that story to the public of what what farmers are actually doing yeah. to provide assurance to the public that they're doing the right thing. And, um, you know, th- th- on the other side, I, and, and maybe this is something that, that I would target more towards uh, people working in agriculture and in animal science, especially the trend in North America has been away from mixed farms in general mm-hmm. to specializing in a particular commodity, right? I mean, even, you know, if you ask somebody, well, you know, um, are you, you know, what kind of farmer are you? Oh, I'm a pig farmer or I'm a, you know, whatever, even though they do probably have some crops or whatever. And you can, you can kind of be led into the mode of thinking that, you know, pig production or, or poultry production or, you know, whatever it's something that happens in a vacuum, right? It happens, you know, whereas, you know, in the old days when you had mixed farms, you know, you were usually using whatever you had on farm and that was Mm -hmm. what it went into. um, That was what went into your, you know, you threw it out to your chickens or, you know, use it used to feed the pigs. Well, that's still happening. And if you think about it, it's now happening at a regional level. And it's happening even at a global level because we've got so good at moving, you know, 
uh, corn and soy that's being grown in the Midwest is going to the Netherlands, it's going to Africa, it's going to Asia, and and what it's coming to Canada for sure. So really, the the farm, the the that sort of boundary, of the farm is now the world sort of thing, and and we need to remember, especially when it comes to poultry, we in large part are taking what would be low value you know, uh, in a lot of co-products and things like that. And we're upcycling it into high value protein products. So in that context, we really should be thinking that, you know, instead of this modular thinking, whereas, you know, here's a poultry farm and here's a, you know, whatever, really what we're doing is a value added activity within the crop sector. I mean, that's really what, you know, that that is the, agroecological niche of monogastric um, farming, whether it's pigs or ducks or chickens or, or whatever. We are, we are basically a subsidiary that uses um, those non-human grade residues from crop production, um, right. the ones that are edible anyhow, um, mm-hmm. and producing high value protein from it. So, yeah. you know, that, that's really what we need to remember. So, so, like I said, just to recap, farmers are doing a good job. Um, really, if the public knew just how much time and energy and mental strain there is managing the environment on their farm, I think people would change their mindset. We need to get away from the idea that uh, farmers are guilty till proven innocent. That's not the way that we work around here. It's, mm-hmm. you know, and for, um, yeah, just remembering where livestock production falls into the big picture with agriculture, we are doing a major service. We are feeding people. Mm-hmm. And how, how do you put a price on that? How do you, you know, how do you, how do you wait, you know, everything in life is a trade-off. I, I don't, I, I don't believe that you can have solutions um, that don't involve some sort of a trade-off with something. So if we're going to feed everybody, there's some externalities that go with that, both positive and negative, and we need to weigh those equally. Yeah. And um, and also don't don't exaggerate the scale of the problem as well. I mean, you know, that that's the other thing too. Um, well, yeah. you know, the 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 media, I think sometimes um, they like they like to exaggerate the the scale of of um, of problems because you know they more attention right but nobody nobody talks about the 99 percent of the time that everything is going exactly the way it should so yeah yeah. that's right and producers should not be ashamed of going out and telling their story and being proud of what they do yeah well i really appreciate that perspective and you used a word um upcycling and Mm -hmm. it took me decades uh to realize this but that is a concept that i'm finding is really resonating with my students students who aren't from agricultural backgrounds but uh they're looking at this and they're saying okay if if we're not using some of these products within animal agriculture where are those products going to go and what's it going to do to the economies of using the other things that we get from that uh from that commodity and yeah that's i don't know if if it's a magic bullet but it's certainly a concept that i've I found i'm able to make some progress with their understanding of where animal agriculture fits yeah and and really like all of animal agriculture because i mean what what 
what poultry uh, what poultry production is doing on the sort of the grain and, and co-product side, mm-hmm. ruminants are doing with low value land. They're able, like it's a miracle. They're 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 producing high quality protein from land that has no other real value. I mean, it's uh, yeah. I shouldn't say no real value, but I mean. Um, yeah, I mean, here in Western Canada, I mean, for decades in British Columbia, um, most of their cattle production happened. They would run the cattle up the hills into the timber, and that's where they would spend the grazing season. Yeah. And not only were they making milk and, and, and beef, they were also in, in turn managing the, the wildfire risk as well because they're keeping the vegetation down. So, so yeah, I mean, I, I think we don't focus enough on the ecological goods and services that are provided by livestock production. And I think we really need to, that really needs to be part of the story that we as animal scientists are out there telling. Yep, absolutely. Oh, great. It's time for our famous three. We want to thank the innovative companies and products whose support and trust make this podcast possible. Fibro Animal Health Corporation. Healthy animals, healthy food, healthy world. Your partner for improving animal performance, Berg and Schmidt. AX3 Digest is a highly digestible source of protein with a low level of potassium, giving young animals a healthy start. Eastman works with you to accelerate your nutritional program innovation. Start your journey with us at Eastman.com. When it comes to raising healthy animals, you need more than the right solutions. You need the right partner who brings decades of industry expertise and a global team to put that knowledge to work for the advancement of your operation. At Fibro Animal Health Corporation, we are proud to work with you as your trusted partner. Well, I don't want to uh, take too much advantage of your time, but uh, we we have these questions that we that we like to ask as we begin to to wrap up and and boy, I, before I forget to say it, I'd sure love to visit again sometime because I feel like we've just scratched the scratched the surface on on some of the conversation. But uh, as we as we get closer to the end of our time together, uh, first question: What is your favorite poultry related book or resource? And I'm not going to hold you to a book and i'm not even going to hold you to one but if you have any examples yeah that'd be great okay so i've i know i I, i'm wise to this because i've seen on other podcasts this question get its answer so so i came prepared today uh to answer that so um i'm going to give you two um actually suggestions Mm -hmm. for this one uh the first is for anybody out there who is uh in a graduate program Mm-hmm. where you're expected to do any kind of stats or, or whatever. Stats is kind of like, um, it's that necessary evil for being a scientist. And there's some people that, you know, they just, you know, there's that sometimes you ha- you're lucky enough to have a biostatistician in the department and you just go to them and say, tell me what, what I need to do or whatever. But, um, but if you are looking for a resource that I have found invaluable, for understanding, like actually understanding statistics yeah. and using it in, in my research. Um, this is an older edition of uh, a book. Um, so this is, it's Biostatistics for Animal Science uh, by Caps and Lambert. And this is the first edition. There's there's a newer one that mm-hmm. has a green paper. 
But if you are planning on spending any amount of time in, in research and, you know, I know everybody nowadays, you know, books are expensive or whatever. And, and, you know, this is one resource that if, that you should have on hand, if, if you're ever going to do. And the lovely thing about it is, you know, I'm doing a real good sales job here. I should get a, a cut of this. But, but one of the, one of the things I really like about this is uh, if you use SAS as your statistical program, and I know right now there's other programs like R and SPSS and whatever people are using, this actually has coding examples in it for SAS. Oh, wow. yeah. So it, it's really, really good. It, especially if you're not a coder, I'm not a coder, but mm-hmm. um, it, it gives you enough that you can be dangerous. So that's number one. Yeah. For, for people though, who are just like poultry and you're, you're looking for a really good poultry resource. One of the challenges we've had in our research group, of course, is, you know, there's turnover and technicians and, and personnel, and you need to make sure that you're getting everybody up to speed. If you're putting them in charge of, of poultry. And, um, and w- the books that, that I, I really, we, we, we have um, a couple of them are the, the Signals books yeah. uh, from, uh, I think they're Wageningen puts them out. But um, yeah, they, there's, you know, there's layer signals, broiler signals, there's a general poultry signals. It's a really good layman's, it, it, it explains a lot of the really important information in there, you know, because, you know, you get a brand new technician who's this eager, you know, whatever, but you tell them, you know, um, you know, I want you to go check crop fill. Well, what's that mean? Well, you know, what is that? And, yeah. What is that? And, and it's really uh-huh. good if you're considering, you know, getting out and, and working in the poultry industry or working with poultry producers, Going through these, uh, it's invaluable because it, it, it helps you to be able to connect at a, you know, industry literacy. That, that's uh, one yeah. of the things that, that, that I find a lot of students struggle with is being able to communicate in the, you know, the vernacular and the, and, and the conceptual framework that producers are, are working in. And, and so these books are a really good entry point for uh, people who maybe don't have that much exposure to poultry and they're really accessible uh, in terms of the way that they cover the topic. So yeah, th- those would be my, my recommendations. So yeah, those are fantastic. Very good. Yeah. Thank you. All right. Well, second question, very similar, except we take the poultry off and, mm-hmm. you know, and these, these can be um, other professional things, but certainly they can be fun as well. Okay. So Jason, have you ever tried to take on a new habit or break a bad one that you have? Oh, for sure. Yeah. Every, every January, right? <laughs> Pretty regular schedule. Yep. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, I, you know, especially if you have, if, if you're married, you know, you, you get pointed out all of the bad habits that you have, or, or, you know, you become, you know, you become cognizant of the fact that there's things that you could really do better Mm -hmm. uh, to be more effective. And um, this past summer uh, I was given a copy of this book and I would strongly recommend it. It's a fairly well-known book. I think it's called atomic habits. One, one of the things that I really appreciate, appreciate about the book is it, combines it helps you understand the psychology of new habits and and whatever and and how you can actually self 
you know, train yourself to get out of bad habits or patterns that you're in and adopt ones that, you know, you can, you can, and, and I, I have actually, believe it or not, I, I'm a believer because um, I've actually been able to, to pick up a, a couple of good habits as, as a result. Um, and if I can, just the one key thing that I took away from this book that I think is really valuable if you're a student mm-hmm. or you're somebody who's striving towards, you know, um, a, you know, a particular goal. One of the things that they talk about is, you know, like, let's say, for example, a scholarship, right? You're, you know, you're interested in, in getting a scholarship. Mm-hmm. Well, I, the mistake a lot of people make is they, the, they, the goal that they set for themselves is I want the scholarship. And so what they do is they kind of, they try and, and figure out a way, well, how, how do I get to the scholarship? But what the book actually says is you need to change the system that you're operating within. So in other words, that's not the goal. The scholarship isn't the goal, but it's to develop a system that would make you the kind of person that would be competitive for a scholarship. And for me, that was a really valuable lesson that came out of the book because all too often you see people who they'll achieve a goal and then they just feel empty. Like they just lose motivation. It's kind of like, well, I did it. And so instead what it says is the goal is the system. It's not what comes to you through adopting those behaviors and attitudes and habits. The goal is actually adopting that system and then good things come to you. And, um, I, I I think it's a brilliant takeaway, but it's a very digestible read, and you, it actually has links to a website that have resources that you can download. So great, perfect. Oh, very good. Yeah, that reminds me. I have a, a freshman class, and we have them put together an eight semester plan. Yeah, mm-hmm. so they graduate when they're seniors, and and I told them, I said, you know, I really don't care about the outcome on this assignment. What I want you to learn is the process of putting together the plans because your, your class is going to change. It's okay. It's a process. Yeah. And, and, and that's a perfect, like anybody who's ever been in high level athletics, mm-hmm. if you listen to the coaches, they'll talk about, you need to adopt the system. It, it's, yeah. it's all about the system and you may not get the result you want right away, but as long as you believe in the system and everybody's following the system, eventually you get the results you want. So yeah, that's great. You know, Lots of applicability, yeah. Yeah, fantastic. Okay, well, the last question then, and we, we kind of started with this because your, your journey through work and academia, you had some great advice at that mm-hmm. time. But just extend that again. If, if you were talking to somebody, and maybe if it's, it's a student or maybe it's a professional wanting to either change careers or get into the poultry industry, any other advice that you would have? Um. Boy, that's a good question. Well, the first thing is um, a lot of us, when you go through sort of, you know, regimented educational system like university, you can fall into a mindset where, well, that's the only way you learn is you have to go, you know. And I think one of the things you need to cultivate is what is your informal learning look like? Like where, where do you go and get information and whatever? 
And um, in particular, if you don't have a lot of experience with something, mm-hmm. um, ask. Like, like one, one of the things that, that I find is, is, is frustrating and, and um, there's sometimes, uh, especially I find with students, they, they um, because I, over the last 12 years or whatever, I've had a lot of interaction with students mm-hmm. and, you know, in, in the deep, deep, dark recesses of, you know, when they're, you know, they're just among themselves like, I really wish I knew how to do that, but I don't want to ask so-and-so because then I, I look vulnerable. Right. And what, what, what you have to, what, what students need to understand is there are so many people out there that are willing to stop and take time yes. and, and spend time with you answering a question that you have or helping build your capacity to do something. I mean, especially professors. I mean, you know, a lot of people, they look at professors sometimes as these marble statues that, oh, you know, you know, they're unfortunate. But I can tell you, so there is so much to be learned in informal mentorship and whatever. And just, you know, just ask. If you know somebody knows how to do something and they do it well, I find a lot of people that are very competent at particular things are the most willing teachers because they love to share, you know, um, yeah, I, there's an old, uh, my, my wife is, is, is fond of reminding me, you'll never be good at anything that you don't like. But I find that people who are really competent with particular things, they don't get annoyed with people coming up and asking, you know, how, how do I do it? But at the same time, the bargain that you strike with somebody is they're going to share with you your expertise. You need to come to them with humility and just admit what you don't know. And you need to be patient and you don't waste their time. That's the big thing. Um, Because I've had students in the past who've said, well, you know, I'd really like to, you know, learn how to do this. And, you know, and I'll say, well, there's an opportunity you can learn at this time. And then they ghost you. They don't show up. And it, it yeah. and, that, and that really can sometimes sour people on wanting to help or they're a little bit more, you know, they, they may apply some more sort of tests to, you know. But really, right. if you're a student or if you, even if you're not a student, if you're older, if you know that there's somebody who, you know, and, and if you don't know who might know something about something you're interested in, ask. Absolutely. There's so many people I I know that, that um, they're willing to share what they know. As long as you respect their time and you approach with humility, they're willing to invest in you. So don't be afraid about asking questions. Don't be afraid of saying, I don't know. Um, And, you know, there's just, just be humble and you're amazed at, at what you can get people to show you. Yeah. Oh, fantastic advice. Yeah. And Matt Orishak, you've, you've been a great example of what you were just talking about, willing to share your time with us and, and give some great advice. And we sure appreciate your perspective and uh, yeah, hopefully we get a chance to have another, another conversation soon. I would love to, Jason. You you know where I am, so just just holler and, and we'll set something up. Sounds wonderful. Well, thank you again, and thank you to everyone out there listening. We hope everybody has a great day. Uh, until we talk to you again, take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. 
Looking to elevate your brand and captivate audiences through the power of podcasting? Look no further. Introducing the custom podcast brought to you by Wisemetics, where we take care of the behind the scenes so that you can focus on what truly matters. Podcasting has become an invaluable tool for brand awareness, but let's face it, putting it into practice can be a daunting task. It's incredibly time-consuming and requires technical know-how. But don't worry, we've got you covered. With our experienced team at the help, we'll handle the operational aspects so you can channel your energy into what your company does best. Are you ready to unleash the podcasting potential of your company? Schedule a call with one of our specialists today at the link in the bottom of this episode. You'll also receive a free podcast strategy consult tailored to the unique needs and goals of your business. 